Legal Faceoff on WGNRadio.com is brought to you by McCorkle Litigation Services, leaders in court reporting and legal technology. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Faceoff on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the High Energy Legal Podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Legal Faceoff on WGN. I am Rich Lenkov. I also have our co-host, Tina Martini, with us. Our moderator, Joe Brand, is off on assignment today covering some Blackhawks um, issues, so we miss him. But uh, Tina, welcome back to another exciting episode. we got some great guests today. Yes, looking forward to the show, Rich. And we're starting off discussing, of course, Trump. We'll be discussing Trump in our legal grab bag segment in a moment, but we're very honored to have Ankish Kadori. Ankish is a lawyer based in Washington, D.C., He's a contributing editor for New York Magazine, a contributing writer for Political Magazine, and a former federal prosecutor specializing in financial fraud and white-collar crime. Ankush, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thank you for having me. So what's in the news the last couple of days with regards to the intense and, and voluminous Trump legal information is um, his attorney was all over the Sunday shows, John Loro, on Sunday, uh, asserting a variety of defenses, many of which seem pretty questionable. But what do you make of this idea that his attorney has put forth saying that what Trump did was not direct anyone to do anything unlawful, but that he was merely asking aspirational things, this aspirational defense? What do you make of that? Yeah, well, here's an aspirational ask. Would you give me your credit card number so that I can go buy stuff with it? I mean, this is nonsense, right? Like, <laughs> or like, um, Hey, would you give me your iCloud credentials? Because I'm calling you from Apple and I've detected a breach in your account. Okay. I, I don't work for Apple. I'm just trying to scam you, right? Every criminal conspiracy by definition is aspirational, by the way. Look, I think that every time that there's some news that pops uh, in, in the Trump legal area in a very significant way, whether it's now it's indictments, but even before that, it was investigations, impeachments, um, developments in the Mueller investigation or whatever that seemed problematic, the release of the Mueller report. There's always like a week where Trump has these lawyers, some some of whom stick around, sometimes they don't, who just sort of fan out and just throw things against the wall and see kind of test drive a bunch of arguments. We saw this after the um, the search of Mar-a-Lago, right? They, the lawyers went on TV saying, oh, he declassified everything, right? Or they were telling reporters that. And then we never heard that again after a couple of weeks. Um, so, yeah, I mean, some of these are like political arguments, um, or designed to like, uh, at least give political audiences and reporters and political media, the appearance of a serious defense here. And there, oh, there are potentially serious defense avenues here. I don't want to like write it off, but some of, a lot of what we heard quite frankly, over the weekend from Trump's lawyer was like sort of transparent nonsense. Just, just talk about transparent nonsense for a second. How much of this is designed by Trump? Just very simply, in the most simplest terms, thinking all I need is to get to one juror, right? All I need is one juror to buy this nonsense, be it this or be it that a minor violation of the Constitution is not criminal. You know, maybe maybe he's thinking, well, that sounds okay. People have listened to stupider things I've said. So that's all I really need. I believe that Trump really thinks in that kind of cause and effect way, if I could just reach that one juror, then I could walk. 
I agree with you. I think that's actually um, somewhat like a, a, a unpopular thing for people to say out loud and lawyers, I think, right? Because we all have this view about kind of how cases get decided, the sanctity of jurors uh, and the oaths that they take. And in 99.999% of cases, all of that's true, right? He is in that one sliver, uh, possibly a singular person in this regard who has the ability to speak to every prospective juror directly through the media and to potentially influence the way they think about this case way before they enter the jury box or you know raise their right hand and take the oath. Now, th- that I think is a, a very long shot. Like I think the strategy like that makes, a, frankly, a good deal of sense in Florida because of the composition of the jury pool, r- roughly half. I think it's not quite half, maybe around 40% of the people in the jurisdiction voted for Trump. In D.C., it's a much heavier lift, right? Because over 90% of uh of dc residents voted for joe biden but like honestly why not if you're a criminal defendant and you have the option to like try among others a very like fringe strategy that maybe has a very very low probability of success you i mean honestly you should try it like it's not even like you can or you like you should like my advice to you if i were your uh if i were your lawyer would be yes use that lever So, Ankush, what about another theory put forth by Trump and his attorneys that his words and conduct leading up to January 6th are protected by the First Amendment? Yeah, I mean, this one, look, there's going to be an issue in this space, right? I think it largely largely derives from the fact that these are statutes that are being used in a novel way, right? Largely because the fact pattern is novel and literally unique in our history, right? So it's unavoidable that the statutes are going to be deployed in a way that we haven't necessarily seen before. And parts of that may include like understanding like, okay, or or concluding like the Supreme Court needs to address like, okay, is the statute 371, which prohibits a a conspiracy to impair government functions, is is that void for vagueness? Is that too vague, right? And you could easily imagine as a lawyer an analysis that would pull together the vagueness doctrine and First Amendment uh, protections. And I'm not saying this is the right analysis, but a conservative uh, jurist, I think, could pull together an analysis like that that would get him past the 371 charge on the law, potentially, right? But once you set that to the side, like on, on the law as it is now, right, I think the First Amendment argument, um, again, is not very compelling to me, right? Because lots of crimes, like when someone tries to hire a hitman, that's speech, right? Someone walks you up on the street and says, hey, I got a gun in, in my pocket. Give me your wallet. Give me your purse. That's speech, too. Right. So is, a, you know, some telemarketer, scam artist who calls you from halfway over the, uh, 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 from across the world saying, hey, I'm calling you because there's a problem with your order. Just give me your credit card uh, uh, number over the phone and I'll fix it. These things all happen all day, every day, actually. Uh, and they're all crimes, um, even though that uh, most, if not entirely, the conduct that has really driven the government's interest was speech. So the indictment here, obviously, it's not just about speech, right? It's about speech directed to bring about certain activities, right? And uh, those activities are really what the indictment is designed at sort of preventing, forestalling, punishing, however you want to want to think about it. Um, but like, I, I don't that's why I'm like, I'm not prepared to write off the notion that like some elements of this may, you know, get some traction under sort of a First Amendment or really a vagueness analysis that is sort of shored up by First Amendment considerations. Um but I think it's just sort of a blanket idea, like, oh, he was just talking, so so he's immunized under the First Amendment because he was a candidate or then a lost candidate, whatever. He's a political actor, so it's political speech. I mean, it's just way too 
pat. It's way too like uh, glosses way like way too easily over complicated issues. And if I could just add one more thing on this sort of political speech thing, which has just really been kind of driving me a little crazy. I understand why Trump and his lawyers are using it because that phrase carries a lot of weight, both legally and in the public conscience, right? But this wasn't like you know Trump's view on a bill, right? Or his campaign platform or some derogatory remark about a foreign leader. This political speech was aimed at subverting a free and fair election. It is quite possibly the lowest form of political speech that you could conceive of. And, you know, to that point, standing at the ellipse in front of a, a rabid crowd of, of, of clearly angry armed uh, protesters and basically telling them, let's go take the Capitol, is literally the textbook definition of screaming fire in a crowded theater. As much of a cliche as that is, that seems to be it. Let's move on really quickly to this, the, the, the motion for a protective order that the government filed because of, as recently as Friday, Trump was going nuts on True Social, including saying, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. How real a threat do you think that is? And, and, and how much teeth do you think that motion has, especially given the judge in question, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the government did the right thing, which is not to ask for a gag order, right? It was just to say, look, this is one more reason why we should have a protective order in place along the lines that we want. Now, whether they get that obviously remains to be seen. Um, but I would not have, you know, supported a, And I think the prosecutors themselves clearly wouldn't support an effort to sort of prohibit him from saying things like that. Um, and honestly, he said way more, he said way more direct and worse things, right? I mean, after his arraignment in Miami, he, you know, had a political event in his, his place in Bedminster, had a speech basically saying, reelect me. I'm going to go after Biden. I'm going to go after people coming after me. Like, the, you know, I'm being indicted for you, blah, blah, blah. So this, like, in the scheme of awful things, he he he, he says, like, well, actually kind of wasn't that bad. Uh, I hate to say it. And obviously it can be interpreted in a bunch of different ways, including in, like, much more generous ways. And he knows that, too, unfortunately. Um that there are, you know, certain things that he can say that can be interpreted in malicious ways and also benign ways, and that he will get the benefit of doubt in certain circumstances so that he'll just continue to say these things. But um, the upshot is, like, I wouldn't try to gag him. And I, and I think the prosecutors are, are clearly not trying to gag him because they understand that. So, Ankush, what's the next shoe to drop in this case? For example, do you think one of the six unindicted co-conspirators will flip or maybe former chief of staff Mark Meadows? Well, I, I think that the co-conspirators are like uh, really, you know, very important here in terms of what happens with them. Mark Meadows, I, for all we know, he already is cooperating with the government. You know, that could be happening and we just simply don't know. Um, you know, the, the co-conspirators um, could become cooperators or they could get charged separately. I kind of think my my instinct, like just as someone who, you know, had to deal, deal with sort of unseemly cooperators at, at various points, I kind of think these people are not even usable. I mean, that's kind of a, 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 a really aggressive, like, I don't know, it's a surprising thing to say as a prosecutor, because you really get comfortable, um, you know, working with all sorts of unseemly people. It's not just these, these people are unseemly. It's just that they've been at it for years, right? On this thing, this claim that Trump got, you know, the election was stolen from him or whatever, like they can't do a heel turn now and become the truth telling, you know, clear eyed people who are going to be, you know, the government's going to sponsor in their case, right? So that doesn't mean the government can't plead them out um, if, if they're interested. It doesn't mean the government can't try to, to try to make them witnesses in the government's case. But I would be surprised if, if it were me and I were in Jack Smith and his colleagues' shoes, I would just charge them. 
ASAP. And then they can make their own calculations about whether they plead out and want to cooperate or what. I mean, and, and the reason, you know, as many people have observed by now, the reason they, perhaps they haven't been charged yet is to keep the Trump case sort of on track toward a toward a, a, a speedy trial as possible. But at some point, if I were Jack Smith and his prosecutors, I'd be thinking, when is the right time to charge these people? Because that's the next step for them. You can check out his regular work at New York Magazine and Politico, as well as numerous appearances all over the place on print, social media, TV, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, among many others. Uh, thank you so much, Ankus, for joining us on Legal Face Up. And please come back as the constant drum of Trump legal news continues. Thank you for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome back to Legal Faceoff. We are very honored to have a repeat guest on Legal Faceoff, the Inspector General for the City of Chicago, Deborah Whitsberg. Deborah, welcome back to Legal Faceoff. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you've been quoted as saying that in your work, uh, you intend to pursue enforcement of Chicago's ethics rules with greater frequency and rigor than ever before, paying down the deficit of legitimacy that our city operates in and go after people who break the rules regardless of their positions. Uh, why is there a deficit in Chicago of legitimacy, first of all, and what do you intend to do to remedy that situation? Chicago has a decades-long, generations-long history of, of operating at this deficit of legitimacy, of operating a city government which is corrupt, in which city officials line their pockets, pad their political power, um, operate you know, for their in their own interests and not the interests of the people. People violate the public trust. Um, that, you know, the, the Chicago way is a proper noun. It has come to mean operating a government which is profoundly broken, which is profoundly corrupt and illegitimate. We have, Chicago has ethics rules. We have a governmental ethics ordinance. We talk sometimes about the fact that that is, that is almost a laugh line in Chicago government, the notion of a governmental ethics ordinance. But in fact, we have these rules on the books and it is those rules which stand between us and a city government which crumbles under the weight of its own illegitimacy. And so we are taking a more rigorous, more serious approach to enforcing those rules than we have before, because that is how we get closer to a government which looks like the one Chicagoans deserve. 
So tell us a little bit more about some of the recent findings, Deborah, that were in the Inspector General's report. Sure. In our last quarterly report, we discuss three ethics investigations. And I should say we discuss them in a limited way, as as is all the law permits. We write de-identified summaries of our investigative work, which is what we've done here. We Uh, When OIG investigates a potential violation of the ethics ordinance, if we sustain allegations, if we find violations, the next procedural step is that we ask the city's board of ethics to find probable cause that the violation has occurred. The board of ethics then adjudicates those violations. The subject is allowed to go before the board and sort of refute the findings, and then the board assesses any penalty as appropriate. So in this last quarterly report, we reported three successful pursuits of a finding of probable cause. So in the last quarter, three OIG investigations went to the Board of Ethics and the Board of Ethics found probable cause. That finding, that successful pursuit of a finding of probable cause has happened 13 times in the last 10 years with three of them in this quarter alone. And I highlight that to say, we're serious about doing this more often and more rigorously than before. Those three cases very briefly, um, one, we investigated a now former elected official um, for allegations that the uh, that that person had used their official city position and city resources improperly for political benefit, for the benefit of, of a political campaign. That was the first. Um, the second was uh, an investigation of a currently sitting alder person. Um, looking into allegations that the alder had used their city authority, the authority of their city office to retaliate against a political critic. And the third, and I think the third one here is really critical. The third ethics investigation we reported on was of a member of the public who had tried to bribe a city building official. That's some new territory. Investigating a member of the public for an ethics violation is, is a bit of new investigative territory. And I think it's, it's really important because uh, any any Chicagoan, anyone can violate the ethics ordinance by offering a bribe, offering an improper gift. That's what we found happened here. Interestingly, and I think this is a source of great hope, frankly, the city, the city employee involved, the building inspector, declined the bribe, didn't take the money and reported it immediately. That's what the beginning of cultural change looks like. Um, but we sustained allegations against the member of the public who had tried to bribe the official. That is both about punishing this specific conduct and deterring its its being repeated. This is about sending a message to all Chicagoans that City Hall is not for sale. Inspector General, uh, we mentioned earlier when we introduced you that you uh, started your first term. It's interesting because the Chicago Inspector General is now subject to two four-year terms under a change in city law passed by the city council last month. Uh, Why did you endorse that change? I I appreciate the question. I I advocated hard for this change. Um, I think that there are lots of basic good government principles which militate in favor of term limits. Um, I welcome a broader conversation about term limits in offices in Chicago government. Um, That's a conversation that's probably overdue. I think it's OIG's responsibility to lead by example in public policy conversations like that. That's part of the consideration here. I also think there are specific features of this job maybe more so than any others, uh, which bode for term limits. We have you know, a, a nuanced responsibility around managing relationships with other people in city government. Those people are part 
partner in and part subject of our work. We need to maintain sort of a well-calibrated relationship. I think if somebody is in the inspector general's seat for too long, those relationships risk becoming either too close or too acrimonious, either, either of which has the potential to undermine the work. I think in order to maintain the independence of this office, which is its hallmark, we need to build an office which is built to run and to succeed regardless of who is in the seat. And so that's that's my highest responsibility um, to to equip the office to succeed in that way. That's that's not about me. That's not about the person in this seat. That's about the function of the office. I think imposition of a term limit has the additional advantage of allowing us to advocate for the unfettered empowerment of this office without being vulnerable to a criticism that we're sort of power grabbing for individuals involved. The over the, the function of independent oversight in Chicago should be empowered in an unfettered and unreserved way. That's not about accruing power to one individual. That's about the critical importance of the oversight function. Inspector General, last question. You also discovered that more than 100 Chicago Police Department officers remained on the job and in some cases were even promoted despite lying on the job. Why are they still employed and what's your plan to remedy this? I think the short answer to why they are still employed is that we have a police disciplinary system that has talked the talk on the notion that a police officer who lies is disqualified from serving as a police officer, but hasn't walked the walk. And so we have members of the police department who have violated rule 14 of the department's rules of conduct, which prohibits lying. And yet they continue to work. They're on the street as beat officers. They're serving as detectives. They're working on task forces. Um, That is critically problematic. We cannot ask people to trust a police department that lets its members get away with lying. And so we issued a report, which included a number of recommendations to ensure that potential violations of rule 14, potential lies are appropriately pursued, punished, and published. We'll end with this question. You mentioned the perception of Chicago as being something that you're trying to overcome and with your 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 work and, and those of your colleagues. How important when you go about your daily business is it not just to go after corruption and ethical violations, but also for the public to understand that that's what you're doing and that's the, um, as you mentioned, the deficit you're trying to overcome? Absolutely critical. That's why I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I often say I will go anywhere I'm invited and some places I'm not to to talk about our work. We cannot do transparency work in secret. We talk a lot about shining a light into the windowless rooms of city government. That only matters if people are looking. That's Inspector General for the city of Chicago, Deborah Witzberg. Deborah, we know that uh, you could be using your impressive credentials to be in private practice. We appreciate the service as a taxpayer who pays a lot of taxes in Chicago. We appreciate your service and uh, thank you so much. And please come back and join us again on Legal Face Off. Anytime. Thank you so much. Next up on Legal Faceoff, we have Rose Bronstein, who is a founding board member of Buckets Over Bullying, a nonprofit organization created after her 15-year-old son, Nate, died by suicide last year. We also have Larry Desparti, who is the founder of Desparti Law Group, based in Chicago, Illinois. His work focuses on many areas, including personal injury, workers' comp, employee rights, and social security disability. Thank you both for joining us today. 
Rose, Thank you for go, go ahead. Thank you for this. Rose, last year, you and your husband lost your son, Nate, to suicide after he had been tormented by cyberbullying. We are so very sorry for your loss. You and your husband have since filed a lawsuit against the Latin School of Chicago, which your son attended, as well as against some of the school's administrators and families of Nate's classmates. Can you please tell us more about what happened to Nate and what you allege in your lawsuit? Uh, yeah, so um, what happened to my son, Nate, was uh, in December of 2021, after a basketball game, between the Latin School of Chicago and Francis Parker, which uh, they have a history of being high school rivals. Um, my son had been accused of posting an Instagram post implying that Parker was going to win the basketball game. And uh, that did not land well with the Latin School of Basketball JV team. And so after that happened on a group text message thread with all the players of the JV basketball team, they started to viciously attack him, harass him, humiliate him, and threaten him uh, throughout the entire weekend. And um, that Saturday night, that would be December 12th of 2021, a Latin School of Chicago student uh, created a Snapchat message uh, threatening my son with uh, derogatory comments, expletives, threatening him. And then what happened was, uh, as he posted it, kids from the school started to grab it and repost it over and over again. And as each student reposted the Snapchat, they kept adding more insults and more threats. Um, one specific threat that I can't ever get past that sits in my soul all the time was um, an emoji that represents um, the message of smoking his ashes, which is a threat of deadly harm. And uh, what we know now, we know at minimum six students took that Snapchat and reposted it, and it circulated hundreds and hundreds of times, um, not just within Latin School of Chicago, but it got beyond the school and circulated around the Chicago community. Um, and that went through the weekend. And then we also know that he received a separate Snapchat message uh, with the suicide baiting threat to go kill himself. Again, so sorry for your loss. That's just horrific. Um, we know having covered these stories in the past on Legal Faceoff and also obviously you know, the most recent news involving the hazing scandal at Northwestern, that this is an issue that continues to grow, both cyberbullying and, um, you know, hazing and bullying of the type we've seen at several universities. Uh, by one account, cyberbullying has doubled over the last decade. Why do you think and what does your research reveal as to why this is such a growing trend, obviously, with the uh, frequency and availability of uh, technology at younger and younger ages. Um, that's a factor. Um, and also, you know, you're talking about two very prominent private schools here on the north side of Chicago. How does this issue look in private schools like Latin and like Parker versus public schools, if there's any discernible difference? I know that's a lot to unpack, but 
we'd like your insight on that if you can. So uh, relating to the private school side of this, uh, from my own personal experience, I've been a parent who has sent all my children to private schools for over eight years now. And uh, in that experience alone, specifically with Latin and Parker, the bullying and cyberbullying that goes on in these schools is so out of control and it is not being mitigated nor managed well by the administrations. They turn a blind eye. They ignore it. They gaslight parents who report it. They gaslight the kids who report it. Um, they do not take it seriously. And it's created so much distress um, socially for our children and for the parents of the children as well. So, Larry, if I could pick up, if I could pick up with it, because that's a really excellent point. And Larry, I know from, you know, your experience in filing the, these lawsuits, obviously one of your main issues and main allegations is that there was a notice, right? That there, this wasn't the first time uh, to your client's point that this is something that the school allegedly, per your complaint, was aware of and failed to remedy, right? So talk to us about how long this has been going on for prior to this unfortunate um, tragedy and, and what you intend to prove with regards to the notice issue. Well, in, in this particular case, I can't, uh, Rose's case, I can't speak to um, with a pending litigation. But, you know, one of the things I'll say going back is um, to your question about private and public schools, this is such a big issue across the board with our youth. And I, and I think that one of the things we're also trying to accomplish here is, is awareness. You know, we, we're dealing with uh, tons of phone calls from parents who are dealing with similar situations and really don't do not know what to do, who to report it to, um, what actions they could take. And so part of what we're trying to do is be able to give parents tools and resources to help guide them on, on you know, giving notice to a school, for example, uh, giving notice to parents, kids who are bullying their kids. Um, and another important layer to this is the cyber ethics piece, you know, where, you know, we really want to educate not only the parents, but also the kids about uh, how to responsibly use their cell phone. And, and if parents are going to allow them to be on social media or the Internet um, uh, to do that responsibly and, and be safe, um, I think the world's gotten to where, you know, kids are on their phones you know, the statistics, you know, it's 80% of their days. Uh, and, and Rose, um, she she's an expert in these statistics. And, and uh, I think that as we have seen, their kids' phones without uh, rules or, or guidelines, you know, if, if uh, to use an example that, that I always hear Rose use is, you know, we have to, uh, if kids want to get their driver's license, there's a course, they have to take a test, you know, they have to to learn how to navigate the road and drive a car and, and nothing's done for cell phones. And, I, and we're trying to say um, we want to get more awareness and, and, and resources for people to, um, you know, do this responsibly. So, Larry, thanks so much for, for profiling that. As we mentioned at the top of our interview, Rose, you and your husband started Buckets Over Bullying to um, support many of these efforts that Larry just mentioned to generally create public awareness about cyberbullying. You announced a couple of months ago your partnership with Larry and his firm. Um, Larry, you've just profiled for us a bunch of the efforts that you have underway. Can you tell us a little bit more about the pro bono services that you are offering? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, what we're 
what we're trying to do is be a resource for people. So one, um, you know, we're developing, uh, we have some resources on our website at stopmybully.com, uh, which is attached. You can get through our disparitylaw.com site as well as buckets over bullying website. Um, what we're putting on there is these resources I speak of, you know, steps that parents could take, you know, first step, second step, um, educational resources on, on things to, to be mindful for, um, you know, as, as, as much as it's somewhat legal, you know, this, the legal area is still developing on the laws on how we are able to maybe go after these offenders. Um, but the real aim here for my firm and, and, and joining with uh, Buckets Over Bullying really is getting the education awareness out. You know, it's not uh, we're hopeful that we never have to file another lawsuit. We hope that, the, you know, education and getting the schools, the state of Illinois, um, in step with with protecting our children uh that's that's the most important piece for us rose last question uh here on legal faceoff uh we'd love your perspective on what advice parents can take away if they suspect that their child is involved in a bullying situation either as a victim or as a participant yes of course if your child is being victimized by bullying or cyberbullying uh, the first thing you have to do is document everything specifically for online bullying, because right now the social media platforms do not support parents when they make a report to the platform that their child is being attacked. So screenshot everything, document everything, make a timeline, uh, collect all the accounts of the uh, perpetrators who are bothering your child. Uh, of course, due diligence, go to your, especially if it's coming from classmates, go directly to the school administrators and work with, with, with the school to go to the parents of the bullies to try to work it out. Um, just want to reinforce to everyone in Illinois that there is um, Illinois' bullying policy has just been amended to say that schools are required to notify parents of, of every child involved in a bullying incident online or offline within 24 hours. That is a new requirement. Prior to that, it was 10 days. Um, if you find yourself in a situation where you are in crisis and you reached out to the school, you've tried to work it out with the parents and your child still does not feel safe and your child is still being harassed, humiliated, bullied, or your child doesn't want to go to school and you can't get safety for them, then that's where our collaboration with Larry Disparity comes in, where he can step in uh, and help families in crisis to um, stop the, the, the problem. So he can use uh, legal resources to put parents on notice, schools on notice as a warning that legally, if you don't get this to stop, then then action will be taken. And um, the main reason why I reached out to Larry is that this system has been implemented in the state of Texas by the Davis Legacy Foundation. Maureen Molak, also a parent survivor, uh, she lost her child, David Molak, at age 16 to cyberbullying six years ago. And through her foundation, she was able to actually get this passed through law in Texas and has legal aid support geographically set up in three different sections of Texas. Um, again, pro bono, where um, families in crisis can reach out and get free legal support uh, when their child is being bullied or cyber bullied. 
And prior to the pandemic, they had seen a 20% decrease in incidents of bullying and cyberbullying just because she had had that system put in place. So our goal here is to do the same. I would like to emulate that system here in Illinois. And then big picture, Larry and I would love to be able to have a network across the country uh, put together, have an attorney in each state with a, with a network with Larry to provide families in crisis uh, pro bono legal support so that we all are in a position to empower parents to protect our children. Because right now, the way I see it, a lot of schools are doing a terrible job of protecting our children. And a lot of parents, when they are told your child is bullying my child, those parents are not open to hurting another child. Instead, their immediate reaction is, no, not my child. My child is an angel. My child would never do that. The best one is my child told me that he or she did not do that. And then that parent believes their own child. And then you as the victim walks away with your hands in the air. and You don't know what to do. And that was Rose Bronstein, founding board member of Buckets Over Bullying, and Larry Disparty, founder of Disparty Law Group here in Chicago. Thank you both so much for joining us today and for the incredibly important work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Tina, can't wait. My, the best part of the show is always our legal grab bag. It's where we cover the most breaking news, sometimes with a legal angle, usually, but not always. Um, but today we've got amazing stories. In fact, when we were going over the rundown, we literally had to drop like, I don't know, 10 good stories because there's so much crazy stuff going on in the world. Well, we, we didn't we we dropped the uh, Montgomery Riverboat brawl that's like all over the place. Um which is which is nuts. But anyway, uh, we, we're very privileged to have a couple of amazing guests, both first timers for long time. First time here on Legal Face Off. We've got Mandy Carvis, who's an old friend of mine, uh, a lawyer with Wicker Smith, a partner in the Phoenix office and um, the most dedicated Orange Theory person I know. I'm new to Orange Theory, but I look at uh, Mandy's uh, social media. And I know you're you're been crushing it at OT for a while. So you're an inspiration to us all. Mandy, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I look forward to it. Another old friend, former colleague, Brett Magpiong. Brett is, uh, man, he's he's got a long resume, a lot going on all over social media. 
And Brett, welcome. But tell us about your book very quickly. Yeah, thanks, Rich. Great to be here. Uh, I wrote a book called The Delta Theorem. It launched earlier this year. It's a, it's basically a framework for how to live with purpose on purpose. Uh, it can be found on Amazon, and it's based on a number of years of my career and just life. And uh, yeah, it was just a great, great opportunity to do that. And Brett's been chief financial officer for a variety of company, companies, managing director uh, for Saving Capital. So. Long resume now, uh, enjoying the life of a successful author. We really appreciate you being here. We're going to jump right into our first topic, which for a while has always been Trump Watch, Trump Legal Watch. Uh, there is no shortage of legal news involving the former, involving the former president. We just had um, a, uh, a great discussion on some of that, but we're going to jump into a couple of stories. The first one, Tina, is... Uh, you know, again, the, the, the latest legal defense is put forth by Trump. We talked about the First Amendment defense. Um, what's interesting also is that in the Florida case, just breaking yesterday, involving the uh, documents of Mar-a-Lago, the judge, the federal judge in that case, actually went after the prosecutors a little bit uh, in a very strongly worded uh, um, order. They actually were questioning some of the prosecution's case. So who knows? Maybe there is some sympathy for Trump, but in in, in the case that everyone's talking about involving January 6th and Trump's involvement, things don't look good. Um, I think as we discussed with our latest, with, with our with our colleague a few seconds ago, a few minutes ago, it seems as though Trump's main defenses are not really legal, even though his attorney did the talk show circuit on Sunday and put forth a lot of legal uh, defenses. It really seems like he's trying to put up, as he often does, the trial balloon into lots of questionable theories Perhaps the public will buy it. Perhaps a jury, he'll be able to reach one jury. You know, that's one juror. That's all you need out of 12. Um, but legally, they don't seem to pass a lot of a lot of mustard, Tina. Well, and I think there's a reason for that, Rich. But I do think that folks should not underestimate how compelling um, Trump and his attorneys are trying to make his defense, whether it's attempts at legal defenses or appealing to folks particularly the demographic that supports him. I mean, ultimately, um, as we discussed earlier in the show, it only takes one juror um, to essentially, you know, turn the tide, so to speak. So I, I think that this is something, and I had a long talk with my family about this yesterday. It's, it's a very nuanced, sophisticated set of issues and ways to frame the conversation, particularly for Trump. And I think that prosecutors just need to keep this in mind because um, appealing to people's emotions is something that could weigh in his favor here. Manny, Trump's lawyers are trying to get this case slowed down, right? They are asserting that there's a variety of issues that are uh, relatively first impression, which makes uh, trying it as quickly as the judge wants to difficult. Uh, in addition, Trump is running for president. They are asserting, plus he is the uh, defend that in a variety of uh, indictments and is soon to be likely indicted in, in Georgia in, 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 in that case. So do you think this case is going to trial before uh, the uh, election, which is currently a schedule for, but again, knowing how long cases take, you and I try cases all the time, it seems unlikely that this will really benefit from a speedy trial. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, even all of the issues that are here, it certainly is a type of case that would take some precedent and go sooner rather than later. But I don't think 
Um, I think they're going to be able to push this off, certainly past uh, past the election and keep up with the uh, being in the news cycle. You know, even if it's even if it's bad news, you're still in the news. And um, Trump certainly likes the news. His attorneys like the news, uh, you know, obviously, depending on the news source. Uh, but there's no way this case is any of these cases are going to speedy trial before before election. Brett, any of these defenses that Trump has put forth, and again, we don't know if he'll actually go through with these. You know, what Trump does frequently is he'll put up a trial balloon and then he'll he'll walk away from that frequently. But, you know, for example, do you think this is just exercise of the First Amendment? Do you think that will play to a jury that, hey, I was just talking. I wasn't really doing anything. I wasn't actually acting. Uh, I was only talking to people. And that's not a crime. How 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 attractive do you think that'll be to a jury? I mean, I think it can, just like you were talking about previously, that it just takes one. You know, I was on a, a, a jury trial one time. I was the four person and I went into the room and I thought, this is a slam dunk. We're all going to think the same way. I was stunned that like the different thoughts that just came up and, you know, the way that people saw things differently. So, I, look, I mean, I think you can. And if they just need one, then certainly that's something that that uh, can can be tried for sure. So we have the next story, Tina, captioned as Taco Bell again, because Taco Bell seems to be uh, part of our regular staple of legal discussions lately. We talked about the victory involving the. Uh, use of Taco Tuesday. But now Taco Bell is subject to another lawsuit. This time, this is a proposed class action lawsuit alleging that Taco Bell violated a state law preventing deceptive trade uh, by selling food that basically doesn't look like uh, like like what they're marketing it as. Right. The lawsuit filed July July 31st in New York on behalf of a customer and some others if the if the class is approved. Uh, he allegedly purchased a Crunchwrap Supreme, a Grande Crunchwrap, a vegan Crunchwrap, a Mexican pizza, or veggie Mexican pizza. So I guess those are the different products that people could have bought if they're in this lawsuit. And the, the allegation is that the photos of these products that induce you to buy them look amazing. They look delicious. And when you compare them to the actual product, as this lawsuit does, it doesn't match up. And they're alleging misleading advertising. Um you know, Tina, we cover a lot of these stories that uh, get a lot of attention nationally and sometimes internationally. And, you know, there's very speaking about, you know, uh, intricate legal issues and constitutional issues. Um, if I was the uh, attorney defending Taco Bell, uh, I would come up with I would I would have probably assert to the jury a very, very specific um, old school involved legal theory, which is, um, hey, it's fast food. It's friggin Taco Bell. Good night. And then I would sit down and let the jury do the thing. Like, come on. First of all, that's what advertising is, right? I mean, when you look at when you buy a car, sometimes, you know, it's not exactly the way it looks. Advertising is meant to show things in their best light and to induce you to purchase them. Not fraudulently, not wrongly. But, you know, when you get to the Taco Bell and you unwrap that Crunchwrap Supreme, it's not going to look exactly like it does on on TV or in the advertisement. Come on. It's it's a it's a stupid lawsuit, right? Well, I agree with you. I mean, first of all, we're talking about things that are what, like $4. Let's be practical about it. How much can you reasonably expect for $4? Secondly, as you said, we've seen a number of these lawsuits across a bunch of different, you know, fast food um, restaurants, et cetera. And they all are pretty much the same. And it's actually the same attorneys 
representing the plaintiffs that we've talked about, um, you know, over the past few months and other similar lawsuits. But I also have to say, Rich, when I saw that picture of that one um, dish, it looked to me almost like the person, one of the plaintiffs, like sat on it, crushed it, had something on top of it. It just, it did not look to me like something that would have been served that way. It just looked to me like it was sat on. So, you know, there's always the plaintiff factor, which is what did you do to this thing before you actually <laughs> took the picture? So, yeah. And for sure. And and Brett, listen, I don't I don't think any time in my life I've eaten a grande crunch wrap that that it wasn't at 4 a.m. or later, right? At 4 a.m., are you gonna are you gonna convince a jury that you know you were only going to Taco Bell because it looked so good in the photo? You're going there because it's like, you know, 99 cent tacos and you're drunk a, a, as as hell. That's it, right? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, when I first read this one, I, I was thinking to myself, wait a minute. I, I wonder if that old lady from that Burger King commercial or whatever from years ago was a, a part of this when she like yells out, where's the beef? Right. right. I mean, it's like, come on, really? This is craziness. So, yeah, I'm with you. I, I eat Taco Bell at, uh, at 4 a.m. <laughs> just like you do, Rich. Exactly. Uh, Mandy, any you want to defend the lawsuit? We got to have someone defending the lawsuit on the other side of this. It is called legal face off. No, you know what? I'm not the one because I I love Taco Bell and I am. I I go to Orange Theory in part so I can eat Taco Bell. (laughs) Phoenix is one of the uh, lucky locations where we have a Taco Bell cantina, which means it has Taco Bell plus alcohol and they have sports on all the time. Mm. It's like everybody's wildest dreams came true. at Taco Bell, hit me up. I would represent you for free Taco Bell. Uh, nobody is looking at any fast food picture and saying, you know, this Big Mac looks exact, you know, looks smaller than the Big Mac that I saw in the picture. I mean, you know, but if I were Taco Bell, I would look at it as free advertising because now everybody's thinking about it more than just Taco Tuesday and more than just four o'clock in the morning. There you go. And talking about it on, on legal face off. So let's move on to another story. A little more serious, Tina. I mean, it's got a lot of attention. There's a judge in Oklahoma who's presiding over a murder trial involving a savage beating of a, of a two-year-old. The two-year-old's mom is on the stands, spilling her guts, crying, talking about, you know, this tragic murder of her, of her son. And the judge presiding over it is seen in the courtroom camera on, on her phone. Um, she is using her cell phone. She's scrolling through Facebook. She is texting, uh, not just once or twice, but during hours of this trial. Um, it's interesting also to note that jurors are obviously banned from using their cell phone in the courtroom, even though arguably jurors could be taking notes on the cell phone, right? Most people these days take notes on their phone. You would see some value to a juror having their cell phone. Hate to laugh, but this judge just completely blew it. You know, again, I've been through a lot of trials. You know, sometimes they are um, difficult to to sit through. Sometimes they are long and boring. And you wish you had a way sometimes to uh, pass the time. But this is a judge, right? I don't know. The judge has to rule on objections. The judge has to, you know, pay attention, you would think, not be on TikTok and not be playing, you know, Candy Crush. It's, uh, It's rough. It's a rough look for the judge. It's a rough look for, you know, judges everywhere. 
I agree, Rich. I mean, this is a really egregious case. And apparently this new judge didn't go through new judge orientation, you know, day number one, hour number one, where you're told, you know, this is common sense, but you aren't supposed to be on the phone, especially when you make sure that jurors, for example, can't be on their phone. And if they can't be on their phone, the judge shouldn't be on the phone either. I mean, it's just a, a, a horrible and sad lack of judgment. Yeah. Um, again, uh, Mandy, the judge told the jury at the start of the trial to turn off their phones and electronic devices so they could, quote, concentrate on the evidence without interruption. Uh, again, this judge was also seen searching for a gift while another witness is on the stand. Again, you and I go before a lot of judges, you know, um, I know you, I know how you practice. And, you know, we're always at the, on our best behavior uh, before judges because it's serious business, especially during a murder trial. Again, really disappointing. Um, the judge is under investigation uh, for violating the code of judicial conduct, which I think is, is a good thing and uh, probably should have the book thrown at her to send the right message to people who are looking at the story. Yeah, I mean, and I think especially given given the severity of, of the case that she was presiding over, of the witness that was testifying live, we're talking about, you know, the victim um, who was obviously offering very sensitive testimony. Um, oftentimes in those kinds of cases um, where it is that personal um, relationship aspect of things, there are things that try to come out in testimony that are objectionable. And if the judge is scrolling through text messages or Facebook or something, there's no way that she's going to be paying attention enough to make appropriate objections. It's not like this was a, a videotaped um, depo that the objections had already all been ruled upon. And in terms of telling the jurors, you can't be on here, but I can. I mean, it's a classic rules for thee, but not for me kind of mentality. Uh, but it's just, it's a recipe for a mistrial and or a, an, an appeal, if nothing else, not to mention just the extreme disrespect for the parties and, and the jury as well. It's it's really unfortunate. We're going to take a quick look at the video um, just so our, our viewers have some context if they haven't seen it. Uh, but Brett, I mean, you said you served in a jury. I'm sure you'd be disappointed if you were on this jury and you saw this happening. Although the jurors apparently didn't see it because she was concealing it under her, under her desk. Let's take a look at this and then we'll pick it up with Brett here in a second. <laughs> Brett, 
Yeah, look, it's it's just brutal. I mean, I you know, I'm not a lawyer, so you guys could touch on those issues, but I, I think it says something about, you know, what the I think the movie The Social Network, you know, kind of touched on, which was the dopamine hits that we're all getting from, you know, our devices these days. I mean, I, I'm not gonna be surprised if my wife doesn't pull out that video and show it to me and say, you know, this is like us at dinner here sometimes, right? Like you're pulling out your phone. Why? Why are you like scrolling through something? What's so important that's there that you can't be engaged with me or, you know, let alone that engaged inside of, uh, uh, you know, a trial like that. I mean, certainly when I was running uh, Experient, um, you know, we had meetings and I told people that one of the, the, the established kind of things that we had was be present. That means that if you're in a meeting, you're not scrolling to see, you know, who's winning the World Cup or whatever the case is, be present. So sometimes I'd have people just stick their phones in the middle of the table because it was just too much of a dopamine rush to try to get to, you know, the fear of missing out inside this. So I, look, it's a social commentary, I think, on, on where we are as a society almost as well. That's a great point. Speaking of where we are as a society, Tina, uh, in a few hours, I'll be at a concert a few, maybe a mile or so from my house, the great Bruce Springsteen and the legendary E Street Band. But there's a disturbing trend these days with concerts of uh, artists being attacked. We've seen lots of examples of musicians being pelted with batteries, with drinks, with food, with underwear. Harry Styles, uh, Taylor Swift, um, lots of others have been the victims. Uh, I think uh, um, B.B. Rexa was the, one of the most famous examples. She actually had a black eye. Um, in the latest example, the video we saw last week or so, Cardi B was attacked with water, but she actually fought back and threw her microphone into the stand. And there's a question as to whether she would be charged. Thankfully, authorities chose not to do that. But what's up with people? You know, I just yesterday I saw that you hear that pilot who jumped on the uh, intercom, I think it was American Airlines, and said, you know, just be nice to each other. Stop doing stupid shit on the airplane. Seems like people are doing stupider shit than ever in the world. Yeah, Rich, I mean, we've talked about this scenario before where like this happened in the context of Lady Gaga's dogs, like the woman who stole the dog ends up, you know, trying to sue her to get the reward. Um, you know, this fan ended up throwing a drink at her while Cardi B was performing in Las Vegas. And then she goes to the police and files a police report saying that Cardi B battered her when Cardi B threw her mic into the, into the audience. And as you said, um, you know, there are going to be no criminal charges. The criminal investigation was dropped. The video went viral, as you mentioned, Rich. Um, and as you also said, this seems to be happening more and more. There was an issue with Drake. Um, you know, someone threw a vape at him on stage. BB Rexa, as you said, she got hurt when someone threw their cell phone at her. Um, someone threw their dead mother's ashes at Pink when she was on stage. I mean, there's just more of these issues and situations. And I think that this is a commentary, a social commentary, but I also think, you know, you're going to Springsteen tonight, David's going with my brother, and then he and I are going on Friday night. I hope everybody is safe. 
Um, I think that, you know, bigger picture, we have to figure out a way to keep these performers safer. I'm not sure if it's better security. I'm not sure if it's reconfiguring the stage and trying to maybe keep the performers not as close to the fans as they otherwise would be, which is really unfortunate because that's the trademark and signature of so many performers. But the fact of the matter is there's more and more of this happening. And I don't think that upping security, getting into um, a venue necessarily helps. I think it's needing security on site, on the stage, right by the stage. And there's a, a certain amount of that already, but we need to keep people safe, Rich. Brett, yeah, great points, Tina. And and Brett, and by the way, Susser's ghosting me on spring scenes. I tell him to return my text. That's a different <laughs> story. Brett, uh, you work for an entertainment company, a, a big one. Um, and actually, as you were talking earlier, you know, this seems to be, you could almost draw a line between what you were saying earlier which was very interesting and compelling about being present and, and losing that, you know, being in the moment with, with this, right? People, celebrities, Cardi B, Harry Styles, they're all over social media. And I think that people feel closer to them. And that's a good thing in some ways, but people feel like, you know, there's no barriers between them. And I could just, shoot, you know, throw a drink at someone on stage. I mean, it's preposterous, but I do think it's kind of along the same lines of, the breakdown of, you know, these barriers between us, which is frequently good and a good use of social media, but it can also lead to things like this. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think that, you know, what comes to me is the thought process that, okay, why are they doing this? Like, they feel like they have the right to be able to do this. Maybe, right? Maybe they have the right. They bought a ticket. That's where they do. They get to do that. But listen, rights are only good if they're combined with obligations and responsibilities, right? I mean, it's rights, obligations, and responsibilities inside there. So, you know, the, the obligation might be for, for the, the, the Cardi B to put on a great show. That's what she's doing, right? But the privilege, you know, inside of right privileges and obligations, you know, is, is that privilege of being there, of, of especially being in row two or whatever the case is, right? I mean, Rich, you're going to be in row two, aren't you? I, I think it's Springsteen. Closer. No, row two would be a downgrade for me. You know that. <laughs> all right. All right. So, so yeah, I mean, row two is a pretty nice spot to be. So look, I mean, I think that just the combination of those three things inside of how we're living together in our, in our society is, is really, really critical. All right. Speaking on about uh, another famous, um, well-known entertainer, uh, Tina Lizzo, who is a proponent of owning your persona and owning your body is now being sued by her dancers for allegedly having the opposite approach when it came to them. That's right, Rich. Um, Lizzo's facing a lawsuit. Her former dancers allege sexual harassment and a hostile work environment. She's vehemently denied these allegations. She's not the only defendant in this lawsuit. It's also her production company, as well as her dance team, Captain, um, we could go on for hours talking about the nuances of this lawsuit, um, but among the more serious claims of which there were many is that she pressured dancers into unwanted sexual situations, um, some of which have been described as really graphic and happened when they were on tour. Um, she's also allegedly made statements that were perceived by the plaintiffs as thinly veiled comments about things such as their weight gain um, and also allegedly put people through really grueling rehearsals 
um, that led allegedly to one dancer soiling herself. Um, these are really serious allegations, Rich. And, you know, there was another set of allegations tied to what has been framed as religious harassment, saying that the dance team captain spoke extensively about her religious views. Um, there was commentary about people's virginity or lack thereof. And so these are some pretty explicit allegations, Rich. And I think that people were pretty shocked. Um, Lizzo has lawyered up, which is not surprising. She's retained um, Hollywood lawyer Marty Singer, who's also worked with other famous folks like Jonah Hill, Kim Kardashian, and Chris Brown. So it'll be interesting to see, Rich, how far this lawsuit goes. Um, but these are some pretty serious allegations. Yeah, what struck me about this story, Mandy, is it came around the same time as we learned about how Taylor Swift gave you know massive bonuses, I think $100,000 checks to each of her truck drivers on, on what will be unquestionably the most successful tour in history, period. She just announced new dates. And, you know, you know, these are entertainers. Many of them are, are new to the industry. Um, but it, in many ways, they are CEOs of a corporation, right? I mean, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of people working for them. And uh, if they are not equipped and trained to handle not just getting up on stage and performing, which is the most important part, but also managing people, that could lead to a lawsuit like this, right? I mean, that's just inevitable when, you know, when, when you're dealing with uh, companies of this size. Yeah, I mean, and needless to say, Lizzo is definitely not feeling good as hell about all this that's going on right now. She is, it's a bad look for her. Yeah, we saw what you did. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a bad look. I mean, she has been very, like, on the forefront of this whole body positivity. You can't body shame people just because somebody's big doesn't mean that they're not healthy and that whole thing. And then for it to come out that she is actually doing the very thing that she has been very vocally um, against is is a really bad look for her. But also just all of these um, alleged hostile work environment things. It's a bad look. It's kind of unusual. I think that it's, you know, primarily female dancers against a female um, employer. Uh, that's kind of a different twist on things. But, uh, you know, it's it's the dirty laundry that's getting aired is is pretty dirty and it's a bad look and it's not going to be good for her from an image standpoint, um, needless to say. And I think there's it's probably a trend. We're going to see a lot more of this in terms of good employers, bad employers. I mean, we're always hearing things in the media about this person's um, a good patron or a good tipper when they go to a restaurant. But if they have this persona as I'm so positive and I'm so supportive of everybody and the people who surround them every day are like, that's a lie. That's that's gotta hurt your that's gotta hurt your image and ultimately your bottom line. So that's gonna be problematic for her. Tina, this is unquestionably the summer of Powerful women, right? The Taylor Swift concert tour. Uh, Beyonce is is also in the middle of a huge tour. Uh, the movie equivalent, of course, is Barbie, which just after I think two weeks passed a billion dollars in revenue, uh, an absolute phenomenon. Um, we've seen the Malibu Dreamhouse. We've seen lots of incarnations of Barbie. We haven't seen the maybe least popular part of the, the set is the uh, the Barbie courthouse. <laughs> Everyone loves to play Barbie lawyer, but there's a History. We talked a little bit last show about this, but there's a history of Barbie being involved in, in litigation. Yes. Was she yeah. was, was was lawyer Barbie your role model for a young Tina Martini? That's funny. No, I actually have um, Chicago Cubs Barbie, 
in my office. So that was, that's kind of the, you know, path I took. Um, But yeah, Rich, I mean, Barbie is all the rage this summer. Obviously, Barbie's been around for a long time. Um, Her lawyers have been addressing issues with Barbie. They've been going to the courthouse together for quite some time. Usually these lawsuits are of the intellectual property kind, which, you know, is right up my alley. And there are too many of them for us to even do a whole show on, Rich. But there are a few that are really interesting, um, including taking Barbie and doing what you will with Barbie. Okay. And sometimes this results in litigation that Mattel wins and sometimes not. Um, There was a recent case, for example, involving a photographer who decided to take nude Barbies and pose them with kitchen appliances um, and came up with things like Barbie enchiladas, food chain Barbie, malted Barbie, um, the photographer, when sued by Mattel, claimed it was fair use. We've talked about how there are a number of folks, including former President Trump, like to use a fair use and First Amendment defense. And in that case, the photographer won. Um, the court found that it was a so it was a commentary that the photographer was making by posing Barbie in these different um, environments. Radio City Music Hall decided they wanted to create a doll around Y2K called Rockettes 2000. Um, Mattel filed suit because they thought that the um, Rockettes 2000 doll looked too close to Barbie. And in that case, the um, Second Circuit agreed with, with Mattel that that was the case. There have been a number of adult entertainment services and sites, Rich, that like to play off of Barbie. Oftentimes, those get shut down on the basis that people on those websites um, are engaging in activities that are not wholesome like Barbie is, and also trading off of the brand, the look and feel of the brand. um, It's much easier to find an infringement in those cases. And then finally, we have the case, Rich, of Dungeon Doll, where someone took a Barbie, repainted and recostumed it into a Bavarian bondage dress and helmet. Mattel understandably sued this person too, again, on the basis that this is not a really wholesome image for Barbie. In that case though, Rich, the court found that this use of Barbie was transformative enough and was not supplanting the original Barbie. So that is a wrap on some of the more interesting Barbie cases we've seen over the last few years. I was wondering when we would get to the Bavarian bondage dress portion of the of the podcast. Thank God we got this. We're running out of time, so we'll just we'll, we'll get to our next segment in a second. But quickly, Brett, Mandy, uh, if you were if you could have any incarnation of Barbie, any of her many costumes or personas or professions, which one would would you pick? Or Ken or Barbie? It doesn't matter. I'm gonna let Mandy touch that one. There, there you go. go. Um, I was never much of a of a Barbie person growing up, but uh, whichever Barbie is that has the most shoes, sign me up for that version of Barbie because you can never have enough high heels. Let's see, Amelda Marcos Barbie. Um, yes, that's <laughs> popular. All right, we're gonna move to our last story, and we're gonna show some mugshots because these mugshots have been called the uh, the prettiest mugshots in history, I guess, from uh, the Queen of Chaos. Let's take a look at some of these. Um, you know, you never want to make fun of someone who's got some obvious problems, but man, she is she is crushing those mugshots. This is a now 23-year-old college student, Rihanna Brock, again being called the Queen of Chaos after 11 arrests. That's the 11 we know of. Um uh 
she started the getting arrested when she was 18 for things, Tina, as varied as uh, terrorism, drug use, um, wanton endangerment of a police officer, evading police, shoplifting, uh, a lot going on. But she, I think she owns it. You know, you, as you can tell from these mugshots, she's certainly not shy. She's got various, you know, various hairdos, pretty consistent smile. Um, she goes by the TikTok moniker of the Queen of Chaos 23, and she picks out her, her favorites. Um, she's been interviewed by the DailyMail.com, by other uh, outlets, and she seems to be, again, embracing this notoriety. Um, we love to cover mugshots on, on this podcast, Tina, when we can. What do you make of the Queen of Chaos, and, and which one's your favorite? Well, um, I kind of like the blonde look on her. So I have to say um, the orange, the orange jumpsuit with the blonde is definitely, I think, one of my favorite looks on her. Um, I mean, I think at the end of the day, whether it's, you know, a condition she's got or the drug abuse, I mean, this is I mean, she clearly wants to get attention. She's getting attention. And I think I read that she's actually trying to go to school um, and get like a college degree um, in the next, you know, few weeks or months. And so hopefully she can become notorious for something other than getting arrested and having mugshots across America. Yeah, she, I mean, to her credit, she's now sober. She's undergone counseling and uh, intervention. Um, but she, it seems a little bit like extra points, Tina, if you remember the name of the, uh, the O'Hare stowaway. Seems like every every month or two we would cover that lady who kept stowing away. Stowing yeah, away. I remember her, but I don't remember her name. Yeah, um, Brett. Uh, let's say you had a mugshot. Smile. Would you would you take the Queen of Chaos approach? Smile, or maybe the uh, Nick Nolte? You know, crazy hair, Hawaiian shirt. What would, what would the Brett Magpie Magpion uh, mugshot look like? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for saying um, maybe you have a mugshot. You didn't ask yeah, me what we, did my mugshot look like, right? That's oh, wait a second. That, and our next slide is gonna be pull up. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I. You know. I. I don't know. I. I. I will say on this particular thing, it. It actually really. When I read the story, it broke my heart. Um, and it broke my heart because I have a. I have a daughter. And you know what I see in these pictures is like my daughter coming in at you know, four years old and in a princess suit and twirling and saying, daddy, daddy, look at me, look at me, you know, and, and am I captivating? And all these things are like, you know, kind of the core. And, and as you read the backstory, it's like, yeah, there was no, no one there to, to say to her, you know, Hey, you're captivating and, and, and look what happens here. Right. And it's just, it's kind of sad. And, and when I saw her smiling and stuff, it's this, I, I felt like it was the same thing. It was a four-year-old saying, look at me, look at me. Right. And so it's just a sad thing. I think. Yeah. Sad for sure. Mandy, it looks like she's getting her life back on track, which is good news. Uh, maybe she'll get things together. Um, as we wrap up the show, we like to go around the room and learn a little bit about our friends and guests and, Let's see. We talked about Springsteen, someone near and dear to my heart, a frequent subject of this podcast, not just because of me and Tina's love for Bruce, but uh, our, our friend Sussler is going to the show tonight. Um, so we can go around the room. I mean, I'm sure we've done this before, 
But uh, let's talk about your favorite Springsteen song of all time. Brett, I know you're I know you're a fan. You've seen Springsteen before. Yes, I have. Yeah. Several occasions. It's been it was great. Um, Listen, I'm born to run uh, easy as just. Yeah, I remember being in my in my dorm room and and uh, it was probably four in the a.m. four a.m. And there was no Taco Bell in town (laughs) and I was uh, belting out born to run. And I think that the R.A.s were ready to kick me out. So love born to run. Now, man, you're a great choice, obviously. Man, you're a little bit different demographic than the rest of us old-timers. So Springsteen might not be exactly in your wheelhouse, but give us your favorite Springsteen tune. You got to have one. Oh, no. I mean, I definitely have have more than one. And and I think, you know, I've never had the pleasure of seeing him live, but I think he does a great job. And I think probably, uh, I, you know, two classics, you know, Born in the USA and then... Um, Dancing, dancing in the dark. I mean, how can you not, you know, love I, the boss? Everything he does is cool, even still. And you know, if you don't have pride, and and you know, I, I think he makes everything cool. So, um, I would, I would love to see him in person someday. I think it would be great. Well, I'll be here the, the next couple of nights. So, jump on a flight, <laughs> Tina. We've covered this before, but how about not your favorite song, but the song that you most want to hear in concert at Friday's show that he doesn't play regularly? What would be on your, man, I can't believe he just played that list. I would love to see him play Waiting on a Sunny Day with Emma joining him oh my on goodness. stage. <laughs> now we cue the video of my daughter. This was not rehearsed. I came up with this on my own. We got to have our crack staff put that together quickly. If you if you put in the following words in YouTube, Emma Wrigley Springsteen, you'll see what Tina's referring to, which is uh, my 18-year-old daughter back in 2012 when she was a mere seven years old being pulled up and singing that very oh. song, Waiting on a Sunny Day with Bruce. You will see that tonight on my social media. I'm trying to find... The original sign that we had, I think it's somewhere deep in my garage and show it then versus now. But that's a nice that's a nice one. Um, uh, you know, for me, I'd like to take any deep cut, you know, one he doesn't play pretty regularly, like the Bishop danced off his very early stuff would be amazing. But we'll take whatever we could get uh, in a few hours. We'll be there. You'll see that on both my and Tina's social media and Sussler. So stay tuned for that. When you play the video, you'll see a very clear shot of the boss and my kid. Maybe tonight we'll reunite the two of them. Uh, stay tuned. We want to thank so much, Brett Magpion. Again, the uh, Brett, the book, and where can everyone get it? Delta Theorem. The Delta Theorem on Amazon. Amazing stuff. And Mandy Carvis from Wickersmith out of Phoenix. want to thank you both for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Come back anytime for Tina, for Joe, who... We'll come back one day, we believe. Um, And for our amazing team behind the scenes, Ben Anderson, our amazing producer. And uh, for Lisa and her team, I'm Rich Lankov, Legal Faceoff, WGN. Thank you so much and see you next time. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.